special guest Pete Johansson, and there's always a little bit of truth in legends. First, some podcast business. As a reminder, the podcast is on a little bit of a narrative hiatus as Luke works his way through the bar exam. If you are expecting more of the narrative from Knights of the Old Republic 2, that is coming, but it's coming around the Ides of March. In the meantime, we wanted to take some episodes to dive into other parts of canon and other Star Wars series. Um, Today, that means I am talking with Pete Johansson of Potsai Picnic uh, about Splinter of the Mind's Eye, which, if I'm not mistaken, is the first novel in the expanded universe um, and uh, very clearly feels like a Star Wars novel that was written after the only thing anyone knew of Star Wars is A New Hope. And arguably on a napkin. I Also that. <laughs> So, um, so I should mention um, while we start that uh, that Pete um, has a rather extensive novel of the uh, pulpier parts of sci-fi, or not not novel, but knowledge. Also, maybe that of the extensive parts of pulpier sci-fi and the weirder places it's gone, which is pretty ideal because um, as the second Star Wars story in, in true collaborative canon fashion, this is written by Alan Dean Foster with, uh, like, permission from George Lucas. Yeah. And uh, we'll dive into the novel a little bit, but do you want to give us some background on this author? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, At some point, I want to talk about where the book itself came from, what the launching point is. But let's talk about Alan Dean Foster for a second. Um, If you've heard the name... Uh, and if you have, it's probably just sort of a vague tickle on the back of your mind and you don't know who Alan Dean Foster is. Uh, if you were one of those kids who bought a science fiction book based on a movie in a drugstore, you've absolutely bought a book from him. So let me just run through a few of the books he has written that are based on movies. Crow, The Thing, Outline, The Black Hole, Clash of the Titans, Aliens, Terminator, Aliens 2 and 3 at Aliens Covenant. Um, He's written at least 12 uh, Star Wars books. I think he did the Alien Nation books, but don't quote me on that. And he also did uh, Shadowkeep, which I think was based on a computer game. The guy is a machine. Um, and so, um, let me just make sure this book is, I believe this comes out in 78, um, which is pretty early for a Star Wars story. Um, by reading it, uh, Splinter of the Mind's Eye feels very much like you change a couple of character names and like details of ships. And this could have been, at least to my mind, any story from that era. Um, and, and that's why they picked the man he did. I, I, um, so do like, do I, Kelsey, whenever I come to you with information about something within star Wars, I'm always very wary because I want to say, did you know? And an immediate response could be, well, of course I knew that dude. I, I was reading this stuff like 
when you were when you were doing the other things in your life. But do you know where the origins of Splinter in the Mind's Eye is? What its purpose was? So I actually don't. I have um, the the only background I have with this book. Right, I. Um, the pulpy Star Wars novels I read were all like young Jedi Knight stuff, which Kevin J. Anderson is its own separate topic. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I remember picking up not the the novel, but like the comic book version of Splinter of the Mind's Eye of the Dragon. Yes. Um, and that was extremely compelling. And I remember thinking like, oh, this is something I should revisit sometime. Um, and I was happy to do it for this, but I have no background knowledge of how or why this book came to be. Oh, you're going to love this, man. Uh, So uh, uh, Alan Dean Foster was tasked with writing the novelization of Star Wars. And this was before anybody knew that Star Wars wasn't going to suck. So he wrote the novelization. And when he got done, George Lucas said, hey, I'm a little concerned that this movie isn't going to do well. And so what I want is a follow-up novel that can use all of the same sets. So could you knock this out for me? Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that great? That's fascinating so um <laughs> so one of the things if you have not read the novel and this is a this is a spoiler laden podcast we're not uh, particular we're assuming this is at least known and you're happy learning it as you listen but one of the things i find really striking about it is the world the way the world is described um you could probably shoot it all on sound stages um and there's there are very few parts of it that are so descript they would require um, location shooting, shooting or building an outside set. There's a lot of the stuff about the story that I wouldn't particularly think would be filmed and especially probably wouldn't be uh, turned into film in the year 2020. But the idea that this is like, how do we salvage the sets for the same story is fascinating. <laughs> Well, well, one of the things that, that I love about this is if you start thinking about the book as you're going through and start counting sets, there are like four. Like the the sheriff's office where they get locked up and the temple at the end. Like the sheriff's office is made out of a temple and they make a point of calling that out so they could use the same set. Yeah. Um, and like there's no... One of the things that's remarkable about it is the only object that is new is like a crystal. Yeah. <laughs> um, the And it's not even like, like not only could you make this out of the sets from A New Hope, you could make it out of a third of the sets from A New Hope if they'd already started dismantling like the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, yeah, all the all the ships are junked at this point. You just need some scrap metal lying around. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, even and so there's one part. So the story starts, um, and we'll wobble back and forth in and out of the plot. It's somewhat relevant to the to this exercise, but it starts <laughs> with Luke and Leia um, flying off to coordinate a rebellion on some 
some planets that are hoping to like get a bunch of groups to all go into rebellion at once. It's a very elaborate thing. Um, they will never make it there. That is wholly relevant. But what's really um, funny about that from like a set utility standpoint is Luke is flying an X-Wing with R2-D2. Leia is flying a Y-Wing with C-3PO. There are no other spaceships in existence that are mentioned um, in the book. And you could cover that part in an opening crawl. <laughs> you could just have them start because the first thing that happens really... Um, well, the first thing that happens is there's some some dialogue and some internal monologue that uh, really hits home that the idea of Luke and Leia being siblings was far from anyone's mind at the point they were writing these <laughs> And the second thing that happens is they get crashed on this swampy wet world. Um, and then the rest of the novel is basically them meandering through an adventure plot in this swampy wet world that sometimes has Imperial forces on it. The whole thing, uh, I, I don't know if you've ever played D&D, &D, but the the whole thing feels like uh, a, a DM wrote up an adventure. It's like, okay, we've got, we've got the town that you need to go to where you have the encounter, uh, you're approached by somebody, you get arrested, you get out of that, you hunt for the secret temple where you have your exciting final conclusion. I mean, it just, I, I, I have role-played this as a paladin. It's amazing. <laughs> I, yeah, so I haven't, so I, I've hardly played, but I, like, I've been listening to, to Friends Table, shout out Friends Table, and they do an amazing job of like, they'd say let, it's, a, uh, it's an actual play podcast of various role-playing games. And you feel, this feels like, Splinter of the Mind's Eye feels like the first adventure that a group makes together. Um, and in this case, you have a really, you could run this adventure with two characters. You could run it with four. You could run it with as many as seven. Um, there are that many parts, but basically the structure doesn't change depending on how many people you have. it. It's very um, on rails. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, yeah, okay, Th this may be out of order, but there was actually something that was bothering me about this that was Star Wars lore, and when I encountered it, I went, aha, I don't have to worry about this because I'll be talking to you later, and you'd absolutely know. And that is the Kyber Crystal. And yes. What, isn't that what the lightsaber crystals are called? Yes, so I'm... Um, so I'm pretty sure and um if i'm wrong and you found it on wikipedia or wherever please let me know and i can do an update in the future but i'm pretty sure this is the first mention of kyber crystal um this is the the splint the mind's eye and the splinter both all are the kyber crystal we are introduced to a splinter early and we get to the the crystal forms the object at the end of the quest um and this is the first time we see it but you will if you if your exposure to Star Wars um, is limited to the movies, the place you would have seen Kyber the most, maybe the only place it's explicitly mentioned, is in, of all things, Rogue One, um, where they are mining Kyber from Jeddah, which is the first thing they destroy with the Death Star. They blow up that city, and they use Kyber to power the Death Star to do it. Um, Jane Erso, or Jan, 
Dan Erso wears a kyber crystal. It's a whole thing. And then if you've watched like the TV shows, you'll see that the kyber crystal is the heart of like, it's what makes lightsabers lightsabers. It's this super magical force sensitive force amplifying rock. Um, and uh, in this, they in Splinter, they are all red and they have other properties throughout that they've been elaborated on. But I think this was like the first like genuine positive contribution to the expanded universe from this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the only other things I could think of that were are even arguably con- contributions is there were like three alien races in here, none of which I am familiar with being anywhere else. There was the, the Yezum, which are like hairy, drunk Wookiees and uh, <laughs> a big worm call, called, I, I think it was called a Wanderella, swear to God. Yep, that's it. Yeah, and and then there was a there was a a tribe of bootlicking alcoholics. Yeah, called uh, Greenies. Um, yes, the Greenies. Oh my god. <laughs> um, there's two. There's two other species mentioned. Um, only one of which is seen and named, and that's the Koe. Yeah, um, with, with the duel. With the duel and the axes and things um and so something i uh want to mention right away is not only is this book a product of like sci-fi pulp novels of the 70s it leans super heavily on a bunch of really shitty tropes um like just deeply profoundly shitty tropes that you will see <laughs> about like like what if a space western but like they're keeping all the extremely racist stuff about a western in it or like an adventure serial right this is something we've talked about on the pod before that star wars is steeped in the like oh well it's the these characters go and there's this magical world and they they are full of ancient power and they stumble through it and we see it like in Indiana Jones, right? Is built of the same milieu. Um, but it's like, that's a, f- a lot of gross racist tropes that are just like, oh, well, the thing that happens is the humans go, they colonize worlds, they study it, and then there's just all this other stuff that you stumble through. And humans, the protagonists of reality, um, have the final say in all these things. And what it means is you get a subservient species of aliens who will literally lick the boots of imperial officers to drink liquor spilled on the floor yep uh not not great <laughs> yeah yeah and um i i if i want to interject a little bit more alan dean foster right here if that's okay um, Go for it. he he uh, it he wrote a lot of standalone books, but he had two series that were really of note. Uh, the first is called, I believe, it's called Flinks and Pricks, and it's about a it's a boys' adventure novel series that kind of ties into you know the the idea of a uh, oh what would you call this a space opera where it's like a young boy with a wiser alien that's sort of attached to him and does this telepathy crap. But then there's this other series, and this is what puzzles me, given all the other stuff he does, 
it's basically a fanny, fantasy universe full of furries. So yeah, like like this this guy who's a janitor in California gets stoned, and then he wakes up in this world with like talking otters and bunnies and turtles and everything, and they're fighting off the real enemies, which are insects. But like it's it's full like assuming that animals sentient you could be racist against them, but it's full of racist tropes. You know, the turtles are slow. You know, it's just all this stuff. And so his whole writing style is based upon those quick and easy assumptions. And I guess that's um, that's what they're looking for in the film industry. I'm, I'm not really sure of how to process it, to be honest. I mean, so one of the things that it leads to here, right? And so if he's reverse engineering from I need to reuse what sets they had from A New Hope. It's like, well, there's a jungle and a temple. Um and what if we did the thing where the jungle temple is important, but it's abandoned? And why if who would have abandoned it? Um, and you get into like this weird space of like, well, there are creatures living nearby, but surely they couldn't have been the ones who built it and then decided they didn't want to be a civilization with the temples or reorganize themselves in that way. Um, so there's weird stuff. They mention xenoarchaeology and like colonization and scientific outposts in this, which are tropes of sci-fi broadly that we hardly see, like outposts we see. Um, and we see colonization in Star Wars, but it's usually of somewhere by somewhere. And it's not just like assumed that the only colonizing force is humans. Um, and then the idea, right, that like Star Wars is pretty... Um, as far as I can recall, pretty good about not saying like alien because everyone's from all over. Um, yeah. And so they do a pretty good job of like, these are the people from this, or these are like, these creatures live in various places, but like it might, it would be um, as though like, like I think about like all the missteps the Phantom Menace made and they don't have any part of it, even with all those missteps where like, Padme is talking about how the humans are the rightful rulers, the only rulers of Naboo, and the Dungeons <laughs> are the aliens that they landed upon and built a civilization on top of, um, which is something you will find in Splinter of the Mind's Eye. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it, it feels like somebody took Star Wars and blended it together with Rudyard Kipling's Kim. Yeah, I mean, it's... You know, whenever, like, they float around, like, oh, what would the Star Wars characters look like in steampunk? And, like, this isn't what they'd look like, but this is how they describe the world and sound like it, right? Like, this is uh, this is some real Manifest Destiny Star Wars. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's, it's, uh, it's almost like Alan Dean Foster didn't have enough data points to figure out what, what uh, George Lucas was going on about. So he just sort of brought it to a more conventional form of sci-fi, which, I mean... This book feels very golden age. It's like 50s, 60s pulp sci-fi. And so it's part of that, right? There's no... I mean, part of the reason, right? You hire this guy because he's a quick turnaround author. He can put something together. Um, and you don't need it to go deep, right? This is your this is your pulpy cash-in um, on it. And so... It's super heavy in tropes um, 
throughout and there are um and then when it plays with star wars right it explores stuff that is really um could have been explored further in the films there's a lot that it's like open-ended stuff um and one of the things i think that was like really um novel and perhaps advanced star wars in a good way right is this is the first time we hear the mention of force sensitives um i think at all um, but it, there's this woman who meets them in the bar, right? Like after the super gross colonial scene, the uh, Luke and Leia are hiding out in this bar. They've stolen some miners' clothing to blend in. Here, you're repurposing the uh, Moss Eisley set, almost certainly. Yes. Uh, there's a, and then they run into this old woman who is who can see Luke through the Force and talks about being Force sensitive, and she has this like this little sliver of a kyber crystal, and that's the MacGuffin that sets the whole thing off. But the idea set up right away that the Force is beyond just this, just a few people. And we don't even yet know that the Force is familial. We get inklings of it, right? Because Luke has his dad's lightsaber. We don't know. No one knows at this point, except maybe George Lucas, and that's a maybe, yeah. um, that Vader is Luke's father. Um, and so we know that there's like possibly a lineage there, but we only know about like that. And everyone else we've met with the force has been unrelated. So that was a neat thing, um, I think to explore and to introduce. And then the way that force sensitivity is demonstrated really is mostly through seeing other force sensitives and a little bit through like throwing rocks around. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's very much on the level of, uh, telekinetic, uh, card tricks here. Like the, what, what you're seeing here, at least until you get to the finale, there's just not a lot of there there in terms of what the force is and what it represents. It just, it's not developed. Yeah. And then there's other stuff, right? Where you could like see Star Wars having gone in this direction and not doing so. The uh, Luke, we talk about like the, the memory tapes. Um, Star Wars quickly goes away from ever really mentioning explicit media other than what we see in, uh, CR2D2 carry. Um, but like memory tapes is a super 70s thing. And then we see the lightsaber has variable blades and also has finite <laughs> power. Um, which are two really interesting things to play with. The um the lightsaber never runs out of power. There's a lot of mentioning of it recharging though explicitly as like, oh well, we gotta do this, and then like, well, we'll use it a small blade for this like precision thing. Um and it's interesting that that would be a space to muck about in. But if you've seen a lightsaber on screen for three minutes, why not? Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's very true. Because, like, the amount, what everyone remembers from, from Star Wars, uh, A New Hope, is the lightsaber. But, like, how much was it on screen? Not very much. And I, I'd never really thought about that until you brought it up. I just thought this was Alan Dean Foster being goofy again. Like, the, the fact that... Uh, that Darth Vader's uh, lightsaber in this is blue. Like, that made me viscerally angry when I read it. But why not? I, and, I mean, I wish I wish I knew this off, off my, off, offhand, but do you know if this was uh, finished before A New Hope? Um, I believe A New Hope was in the process of filming when he wrote this. Okay. Uh, I know. I know that it wasn't out because it would have never seen the light of day had everybody realized that a new hope was successful. 
Like this thing only exists because they they were expecting a new hope to crash. And it's also yeah. So this makes like the first time really where we see um, canon expand and also canon diverge. Um, and they're pretty explicit now, right? Like it's still in print; you can still find it. And they have been explicit. Like this is legends, right? Like maybe some of it's true. Um, the copy I had included a line at the very end. Um, well, I say the very end. The copy I had also had like ten chap, ten first chapters of other expanded universe novels. <laughs> but in there, they had this line: "These legends remain true to the spirit of Star Wars, and in that way are another avenue through which we can get to know and understand our beloved heroes in that galaxy far, far away." Which, sure. <laughs> Why not? Well, I I would like to call out another way in which these are not true to the spirit of Star Wars. Like, the first encounter we have with Princess Leia, do you remember what she was doing? She was, was, fi- she like- she was fixing her hair. Yeah, I... <laughs> so, there's... To my mind, there is one good moment for Leia in all of this book... And everything else is just a deep, deep disservice to the character. Um, there's a lot of of damsel or prissiness. There's a major plot arc is set in motion by Luke and Leia having a mud fight um, as like teenagers. Um, again, with super <laughs> high romantic tension because they did not know that that was not going to be kosher. Um, <laughs> It's amazing. Um, So there's one other moment. So there's a part in this, and like the the story is an adventure. They get captured, they escape, they are pursued by creatures, they hide in various places. There's a long part. Like the whole, I think, last third basically takes place underground. Um, And Luke and Leia are again separated from the other people, the other creatures they've assembled, and have this long adventure where they're eating their, like, protein concentrate cubes. Um, and then they cro- They have to cross an underground lake. And at the end of it, um, like, part of that process involves Luke swimming underwater to use the lightsaber to detach a massive lily pad as a boat. And then they oar across it. And at the end of that section, Leia reveals that she was scared because she cannot swim. Luke who was raised on a desert, never <laughs> left the desert, is a moisture farmer, <laughs> somehow can swim, and Leia from Alderaan, which we don't know anything about Alderaan at this point other than it no longer exists. But we can assume at the very least if you were a princess, you would have access to a pool. Right, right. And, like, the... <laughs> What's jarring, like, her incompetence is jarring, but what makes it even more jarring is Luke's competence. Because he comes off much better here than I've seen him in anything else. Like, he has a plan, he's being relatively clever, he's being, like, he, he's he's a vaguely competent warrior at times, and none of this is true in my experience of the films. Yeah, it's... It's weird. Um, I will I will say the one thing they do well with Leia is there's a part, um, and we're just all over the place in the plot, but that's that's fine if you've... None of this will detract from your experience of reading this. 
what could? Where, <laughs> um, where Luke gets pinned, they're at the climactic temple. There's the big hyper crystal. Darth Vader has followed them. He's um, he's killed the Yazim. They're they're helpful Yazim who um, are basically Wookies with anti their noses um, and drinking problems. And drinking problems. It's it yeah a lot. Hmm. Um, but there's a part where Luke is pinned. And Leia takes the lightsaber from him and then has a duel with Vader. Yeah. <laughs> that is good. That is a genuinely good thing. It is a cooler thing than we got to see Leia do with a lightsaber ever in canon, which is frustrating because it's preceded by like 13 chapters of lines like um, Leia's lips were perfect and we're wordless and perfect. Like it's weird. It's super <laughs> reductive. Um, as the and like giving him the benefit of that that he has not seen Carrie Fisher in the performance. If you've read the first scene of A New Hope, if you've seen the opening part, you know that Leia is a more compelling character than a princess supernaturally concerned with her appearance um it's weird <laughs> yeah it's it, it is the the best moment in this entire book for me is the one you're talking about where she has that confrontation with vader like it's it's the biggest turnaround it makes her interesting and i want her to be interesting because she is and i I, I guess my worst is like I don't want to be too down on Luke because Luke Luke's an everyman, but just about everything he did in this whole book was my least favorite part. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and like um, as as somebody who reads a lot of pulp science fiction, uh, there's a lot to be said for slowly building stakes and making things more so. so Within the first 30 pages of this novel, you find out that whoever gets this kyber crystal is basically God. <laughs> and then at the end, where you're having this big ba battle with Vader and stuff, like, uh, are we worried about spoilers here? No, no. Well, he he falls down a hole and the crystal magically heals everybody and it's like nothing happened. <laughs> everybody... But the Yazim. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sure. The the drunken Wookies died, but like they there's a, it even makes it pretty clear that Vader's gonna be okay, and he just had he well I mean he 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 lost body parts. Okay. He loses an arm and falls in a hole. <laughs> it's incredible, and I will say. I well, I actually I want to ask you. I I hope that's okay because this is your podcast and me asking you things is no, a little. No, go for it. What Vader felt different to me. Like when you read other other uh, Star Wars novels, he has a certain feel of like ominous, quiet competence that he's slowly building, and he has his subtlety to go with his cruelty. This did not feel like Vader to me. He felt. Uh, I don't know, like like a like a monster, like a zombie. Like he did not have the same level of sophistication that I feel I get from other things. Was that your take? Yeah. So 
So the one thing I think they that the one thing this book does well with Vader is it saves him basically for introducing in either the last or the second to last chapter. Um, they do a very good job of like knowing that this is going to be a impactful thing and he shows up at the end. But when he shows up, he reads a lot more like like Immortan Joe. Yes! That's that's a great analogy. That's totally what he's like. He's he is he is not he he's not the character we've come to know and fear and kind of dig. Right, because I think like the one of the things that's essential like and even if you're just going off like the script of a new hope, we know that Vader is he is powerful. Um he will lash out in anger at underlings but as far as i recall i don't think he actually kills any underlings in a new hope he does it later right as things go go worse and he um it's like emphasizing the stakes in empire strikes back when he force chokes um someone across star destroyers yeah apology accepted yeah yeah um but in this um but the version we see is very intimidating and powerful but also someone who is used to having to demonstrate his power to get his get get this way and in this right he shows up and there's like there's a couple sub-level like imperial villains and there's a great big battle underground and after the battle ends the imperial forces retreat they realize they don't actually need to i don't know continue their pogrom um in the caverns of this soggy jungle world and they need to actually get the crystal and so you have like this this underling who's like the scary regional governor in the first act and now just this like toady to Vader at the end. And he gets killed brutally. And it's important that what's striking is he previously this this uh like Captain Supervisor Grammel, he kills an underling in a very petty and cruel way early. Um or and then Vader does the same to him. And that just makes it like that. You could replace the name of Vader with, like, you could put any minor Sith who showed up and it would feel pretty similar. Um, This could be, right, this could be a Darth Maul story, right? You could have written this with a, I mean, not obviously with canon, but you could have written it with, like, a character we know nothing about and don't even have a, like, feeling about when they show up on screen. He does scary things and is cruel to his underlings in a murdery way. Um, because he is like just malevolent and not like calculating or aware of his own power. Yeah, and I I think it would be rel- like if we sat down and really put our minds to it, you and me, over a five hour period, we could remove every reference to the force in this novel and still have it make perfect sense. absolutely right like the parts and like i was thinking about like would you even need to change imperial no oh yeah like imperials are everywhere Uh, like the only thing that i think would be difficult is trying to explain why everybody cares about the stupid crystal yeah but you could even change the force to like you you could probably get 90 percent of the way there by word replacing force with like mana. Oh yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, it's it's a and I I should be clear to some extent I honor Alan Dean Foster for this because like it it's hard to imagine a more serviceable writer that can just chunk out a million books about anything. But like fundamentally like he just he just chunked out a book and then painted Star Wars onto it. Like I do not think that this had to be Star Wars. I don't think any of his books, well, maybe the furry ones have to be what they are, but the rest of them could be about anything you wanted because, like, he's like, okay, here's the basic plot, here's the hero, here's the weird interaction with the almost girlfriend. Yeah, absolutely. I should mention, right, when we're talking about, like, the way that there is tension between Luke and Leia written into this, <laughs> is that it is all very, like, the first season of a high school sitcom where you know they're being played by like 23 year olds but they have to pretend that uh no one in this universe has ever fucked um yeah so it's got like that like bubbling over energy of like a crush and not like anything else um and that's a super interchangeable plot arc for any any story you switch the names um and it's fine and like i don't recall reading and i would i like really want to revisit the the comic adaptation of this because i don't recall any of that from it um for obvious reason but i think it's one of the like least essential things right you can remove um much like this novel is star wars painted on a like 90 percent, 95 percent complete story if you extract all the Alan Dean Foster stuff, you get a very slim Star Wars story that you can lightly tell while losing most of the context and not losing anything of the impact. <laughs> I think that's absolutely true. I, I mean, and it's 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 fascinating in its own way. It's almost like like somewhere in 1978, 1979, there was this alternate time track where like this happened. And, and, you know, it was very, like, we went down the time track where, like, Star Wars actually happened. Like, this book occur should have occurred rightly in the realm where A New Hope was not a hit and nobody cares about it. And most of the movies now are, like, the black hole. <laughs> yeah, well, because, I mean, I, I, uh, I, I hope it's okay. I'm going off a little, but, like, one of the things, like... um I understand people have gotten a little world-weary about some of the Star Wars movies. I have a lot of sympathy for that. But the fact is, A New Hope flipped over the game board. Before that, there was only one decent science fiction movie. And that was 2001 A Space Odyssey. Everything else was crap. Nobody had any plans about how to make science fiction good. And George Lucas kicked that door open and as a result we have good science fiction films and it that door it it didn't have to open like if that thing had sucked enough we'd have just ended up with this weird little alan dean foster book and we'd be doing something else now with our time like we we'd all be huge fans of i don't know starsky and hutch <laughs> the the uh, the greater starsky and hutch cinematic universe <laughs> Starskin Hutch legends. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's, and so that's why it's so, 
and I think like the reason we like I wanted to we're while we're on like the, the narrative I thought it was really interesting to explore what did it look like when they were trying to cobble together canon before they knew that they were like building canon right like when Disney bought Star Wars it made a very conscious effort to say this is what we're keeping this is what we're gonna continue to own the rights to but not like feel we are bound by um and there's the, this is a whole thing that came about because like the first movie took off no one quite knew what to do with it and there was already like this novel out there and because the first star wars products that came out really were like here's the novelization of a new hope here's the comic book of a new hope and then at some point they like ran out of stories before ran out of telling that same story before the next movie came out and like, well, we got to do something. Yeah. And they just threw authors at this universe and tried to fill it in. Um, I, are you thinking of Jackson right now? Cause I'm thinking of Jackson. I'm, I'm not, but do tell. Oh yeah. Well, the, the comics. So uh, I, 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 I've always worried about talking about this stuff cause you know so much more than me, but uh, the, the, there were strong restrictions in the comic book world about what you could do with the Star Wars properties. It's like you could interact with the main characters, but you couldn't damage them in any way. And you couldn't make characters that were basically just alternate versions of the, like you couldn't make another naive Jedi and call him Buke Slywalker. You know, so what the the first character they did is an attempt like, well, here's something radically different we're going to do to try and join the world is a is a huge green rabbit named Jackson in a red jumpsuit that like had six gun lasers. And I, I don't remember, but he had some sort of slogan that he said as he was shooting people like come and get it. And he was chewing on a big carrot all the time. And like, you know, LucasArts or whatever the precursor of LucasArts was, was justly horrified by this because it's a terrible idea. But that's the sort of thing they were running into because they didn't want to give that freedom. Uh, but this is what happens when you don't. My God, they made Jazz Jackrabbit as Poochie in Star Wars. <laughs> They did. If if uh, to the folks at home, if you just do a Google image search for J A X X O N, you're going to be horrified by this thing. Like it is an abomination unto God and man. I, I what? <laughs> <laughs> the folks at home here is me and uh, what the hell? <laughs> I. I, yeah, okay. Um, I, I'm so glad I came armed with this. I'm very happy that this is turning into horror. <laughs> well, there's a lot. I mean, it's a, one of the things that's like... So the novel, I think, would also be more interesting if it played in horror, which it doesn't. Um, it plays in adventure and like, oh, here's a very scary like swamp worm, I guess. We're not doing sandworms. Um and that could be a whole thing, but like, no, it's just going to be a detail in the background. And then there's the whole, this whole like third act of like walking through these underground caves lit by algae to find, built by one ancient civilization, occupied by one um, civilization local to the planet. Um, this whole thing, it read like 
a Mike Mignola story, uh, except they never went into the actual, like, places he would go where it's like, this is horrifying. You should feel uncomfortable every moment you are here and should be figuring out a way to make sure nothing from this comes back to hurt you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it would have been a very effective... Like, as, as I'm thinking about the sets, we've got... we. It goes from swamp to bar to swamp. Oh, no, to, to, to around the bar to temple to swamp to swamp to underground to underground to temple. And all of that could be scary, except arguably the bar. Actually, the bar was the scariest part. That whole thing with the, with the alien licking the, the boots of the Imperial was the most affecting thing in the book for me. I, I hated it on a visceral level. Yeah, I mean, I think it was that I knew that we had this episode coming up that it's like, I'm going to power through this. But like, if anyone stopped reading the book here and uh, maybe threw it in a paper shredder, I would understand. Oh, I, I nearly threw my Kindle in the shredder, man. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, it's like, and there's no need for that. And I think it's something that's very easy to, easy to drop. And then like, the later parts, like, none of the tropes are great. But even the part with the Koei, there's this, God, there's this whole ritual fight. Like, they get, after the lake, they get ambushed by this other different local group of aliens that live in the tunnels. And then they have a little battle. Um... Um, and Leia's actually really good at that. Like, Ellen Dean Foster is really good at writing Leia when she has a weapon in her hand. Yes! Um, arm her and it's fine. It's <laughs> like, oh, oh, suddenly this is a character. Um, so they have this little battle, and then they go and they're like, oh no, the rest of our gang has been captured. Uh, um, we have to, Luke has to do ritual combat to free him, and then he does and it's like actually a really cool moment where like the force he slips into the force and it frees wins the the fight and then they have this battle that battle feels very much like like they either lifted it for the ewoks or they were thinking of it in that space and that was like fine and cool but there's a lot about like all the tropes the talking about like the primitive world the their religion is simple so we can trust them when they honor their word of their god and things like super <laughs> weird yeah yeah well what i mean the other vibe i got from some of those sections i'm, I'm hard pressed to come up with a good example right now is like alan dean foster wrote a ton of uh star trek tie-in novels uh so like he took all of the animated series and turned that into a bunch of Star Trek novels and he wrote some on the side and some of this did sort of like if Luke had started yammering about the prime directive in the middle of that I'd have totally bought it. Well, so there's a part where Leia specifically says this is against the Imperial Charter. <laughs> like building building this energy mine thing on a planet where there's 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 an indigenous population i remember that yeah so it's really interesting there's um and so this actually uh on on last week's episode i talked to to matt ford about the way that new novels are filling in gaps in the canon and one of the gaps they fill in is what was the senate doing until it was abolished like after after the empire was established, but before the Senate was abolished. 
And he, and in other novels, it makes it clear that the Senate is doing busy work or they're doing um, what you might call constituent services um, where they aren't like really, they don't really have any power, but any great power or they can't like stop the emperor. But if people ask senators for things, the senators figure out what they can do or what resources they have to do them. Um, and I'm bringing it up now because there's a part where they mention it, um, where they mention that the workload has been shifted from senators to regional governors because this takes place after a new hope. And it's like a throwaway line and not throwaway. Um, it's, but it's a blink and miss it line where Tarkin talks about the Senate being abolished. And this one picks up the logical thread from that, which is, oh, well, with the Senate gone, the governors have to do all this grunt work. Uh, yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't think about that, but yeah, it's well. And, uh, at one point, I had to go back and look at this where they were talking about how the uh, there would be consequences if word got out that that the empire was mining on this planet. And I'm like, consequences? What? They're at war with the rebels. But I guess that there's a political thing going on where the rebels are trying to woo this planet to join the rebellion. I yeah, I mean, so one of the things that stands out, right, is that this, you could take a lot of this plot, or at least the plot as, like, the rough outline of it, and it would make a pretty good, like, two-episode arc of Clone Wars. Um, yeah! Or, or Rebels, you flip it around, because there's stuff here. Um, and the idea, right, that, like, the Empire gets away with stuff because it's not known feels um, eminently plausible uh that authoritarians thrive without um without they thrive in darkness um, but also like without the any any knowledge of their worst activities and if the planets had the means to to revolt this might be a like a catalyzing moment but it's interesting that like they're playing with that but also they never really like it's weird to think of what consequences can happen and it's weird to float the idea um of more things happening when everything that does happen is the two characters go from point A to point B in a swamp. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, um, well, I mean, like, as we said before, they're, they're in a role-playing adventure. There's not a lot of room for character development. I mean, they're not just in a role-playing adventure, right? Like they are in a, like, uh, like adventurers first role-playing adventure yeah yeah absolutely i mean they may level up at the end of this maybe they may level up the dm has a way to say okay here's the scary big bad but they have like a god mode to just dump him so that you can characters can get by and you can face him again later yeah yeah and then and then you've got the big rock that you can use for future adventures right um yeah and so there's there's so many little weird things so so and like one of the things too right so here's speaking of speaking of like luke being this like universal protagonist apparently luke spent his time bored in tatooine learning other languages oh yeah yeah because that's how he knows the uh whatever they're called the the yuzzles language (laughs) i can't even remember their name now yeah, uh, which is like a creative way of saying he rolled a natural 20 on like check on charisma. Yes! Yeah. Oh, well, and do, do you catch the reference that he, he couldn't understand R2-D2? What? 
Oh yeah, like he's 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 talking like at the very beginning. He's he's rapping with R two D two, and R two D two says something, and he's like, "I wish C three PO was around. I can't understand robot language." It's so. <laughs> it's so all over the place. Um, there's, I mean, there's just weird stuff. There's um. One of the other weird parts, and this is, I think, around in Chapter 11, is we hear why Leia joined the Rebellion, right? She had been working as a senator, um, and she's like, what, what brought her there? And she explicitly says that it was the aesthetics of the Empire, that it was the decadent aesthetic, and that it was, like, boredom with the culture. Oh, God. <laughs> and then she references that this was because it was a long-established totalitarian regime, um, which means the idea, right, that uh, the Empire is only 19 years old as it is now in canon is clearly like yeah that's out of the picture i i think it's pretty clear that when he was doing this he was thinking about the roman empire it absolutely is um it yeah oh so i i have a a question for you as long as we're uh yeah 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 so uh was was this the first uh, time you read this particular Star Wars novelization? And if if it was the first time you read it, what was the first? What, what's the first Star Wars book you ever read? So this was the first time I read this that wasn't like in the comic book form. Okay, um, and I think I only read like one part of it. Right, it was like the, some issue somewhere. Um, and then the first one I read, like I remember reading like the Star Wars storybook, but like novel wise. I feel like it had to be like the first young Jedi Knights book or one of the early young Jedi Knights books. Uh, I just remember picking up like a whole row of them before summer camp when I was like eight. Right. Um, I, and I, so I don't think I read um, the only other one that comes close is I remember like listening to like a audio play version of like Rogue Squadron on like a road trip when I was a little kid. Oh, that's awesome. Uh yeah, I uh um I didn't have many options. So I saw I saw a New Hope in the theater when I was like uh 6 and then that uh, like immediately after that a few months afterwards I saw Splinter of the Mind's Eye in in a drugstore like display and spent all my lunch money buying it, and I read it to tatters over the course of that summer. I must have read it like ten times, and I thought it was the best book ever made. I mean, in that way, you are like the target audience. Oh, yeah. I mean, they they were going right for me. They knew it's like he has no taste. He wants to hear more about Luke. Yeah, you know, it's like don't worry about the details. It, it was perfect, and uh, like honestly, like I, I I've poked a little bit of fun of at our friend Alan Dean Foster, but the fact is, I've read a lot of his books over the years. I mean, and the thing is, like, if you can get past and like again, super understandable. If you can't get past the the opening part and like just the the gross racism or and trope of all that if you get past that then the the story moves yeah there's um and it seems like i remember because i read this um i read most of this on planes this week um 
and they weren't like long flights. Um, and I had like just it was it was going pretty fast. And like once, there's a it drags a little when they're like captured and imprisoned. But then once they escape, right, it's pretty kinetic all the way through. And they skip ahead what could have been like more meandering stuff. And then the last act, um, really like the last act, which goes from like once they cross the lake, it is it is action until the end. Um, and they do not linger in the end. It's like, okay, Vader's in the hole. The Yazim are dead. We got the crystal. We are all magically force healed. Um, <laughs> let's all go back and uh, leave for the thing we were going to do in the start, right? Like it's very man in a hole, man out of a hole. Yeah. Yeah, let, let's let's all go somewhere else and take a shower. You know, it is just... Um, that, that, that's... I think that's a really good way to look at this. It, it's it's a very uh, it's like a serial pulp adventure. It, it's not designed to, to to close out the series. It's sort of designed to create an opportunity for other things to branch off, but it doesn't really um, like I could see it as part of an old time radio show or any sort of pulp novel series like The Grey Lensman. I mean, it is. It is wrapped up in that tradition and that that racism you were talking about before. I can I draw a dotted line? Did, did you ever watch Johnny Quest when you were a kid? Oh my gosh! It feels yeah. a little like Johnny Quest to me in that, like, there are all these characters that are like, I, it's basically a Cold War cartoon where they're they're sort of declaring uh, all these other nations are ha, are daring to interfere with the hegemony of the United States. And but they never actually identify the person. They're like, well, this is a mobster, and you can tell because he's sort of Italian and has a cigar. And this guy is Chinese, and you can tell because he's squinting and he has a sub. Like they just sort of do these weird racial. Uh, let's keep it simple by just sort of flashing up the minimum information. And they did that. Like the racism had a purpose. It was to keep the story moving. And like a lot of the shortcuts that Alan Dean Foster take here to make us that make us flinch kind of kept the story moving too. It's like, well, the empire's bad. Uh, these aborigines are helpless. You know, you know it's just like I, I'm not defending any of these choices, but it certainly made the story move in a clip, and I, I do give him credit for that. I mean, and it feels really, in a lot of ways, I think. Um, it almost feels like reading a Tintin story set in Star Wars. Yeah, that's a great analogy. And because you have you have your protagonist who is like young and clever and therefore can solve all the things. Um, and that's enough, right? Like if you are reading this, you just slot in. It's like, all right, how is she going to get out of this one? Um you got like the bumbling drunk sidekick. I don't want to extend the analogy too far, but you have, but it goes enough, right? It goes at the clip and what you're seeing in the background is explicitly not thought of, right? Like there are very few characters in this who are characters. Like Luke might be the only one. Um, Hala is like a, the, the old woman with the splinter might be like a, a recurring companion, Leia is like a sounding board. The droids are in and out of scenes as is convenient. Yeah. The Yazim are like tools that show up to get things done. 
we get a tiny bit of the interior life of of the like captain supervisor grandma and of like a little tiny sliver splinter if you will of vader um a little bit of leia but we don't really get to hear much about like what it is to be anyone but luke and what it's like to be luke is really cool yeah yeah absolutely hey um holla how did you picture her in your mind did you i i because i don't know if you've ever seen the dark crystal but i always pictured her as agra from the dark crystal that the the weird elderly woman with the third eye that was always coming up to people and saying this is your quest you know it's i don't know why i made that connection but i thought about it the whole time i you know that's pretty good i think um god what's the there's a very specific character um but it's the one of the old lady the old lady from spirited away okay you know i'm actually googling old lady spirited away right now yubaba um but it's like a very similar kind of yeah yeah that that that's excellent and it's this it's basically the same character as agra in the dark crystal yeah um and it's just like you throw a cloak on that and some mud and you have this character who i mean is i will say this it's very star wars does not uh do a great job ever really but especially early of having a lot of female characters and the idea that this old woman is such a part of the story is pretty good um but then it leans again it's super hard it leans heavily on tropes they make a joke um about witches turning people to frogs in this Uh... which is like again ellen dean foster doesn't care about the specifics he wants you to picture witch and move on Well, it reminds me of the uh, the Timothy Zahn books where everybody's drinking uh, uh, hot chocolate. It's like, what's a frog? Come on, guy. I yeah the the t- witches turning to frogs was one, and then the other one that was like super out of universe that pulled me out was um, they used the line like Saint Elmo's fire of old on the rigging of a sailing ship. <laughs> incredible you could say blue lightning (laughs) sure but what's weird too and like this is something that star wars tidied up a lot later um and especially now you don't reference of old all of this is old it is long ago yeah yeah uh long ago far far away come on incredible and and once again, Luke is from a desert and doesn't have a lot of experience with ships and St. Elmo's fire. Yeah, so I will say the thing the thing that drew me to this and the thing that stuck in my mind, like I could have been probably definitely no older than ten, and probably like around eight or so or something in that range. Definitely elementary school when I read the when I like was sitting at the grocery store back when they had like a little comic book section that I was flipping through this dark horse the line as i remembered it in my brain from splinter of the mind's eye was like the you see luke with his head held underwater and he says something about like dying from drowning was hardly a possibility or like was it's like it's almost like how ironic right like this was no chance of this happening to me on tatooine um which was incredibly well handled in the comic and so when I got to that point, I was super excited in this novel, and the exact wording 
um, here I'm going to quote is, quote, raised on a desert world, he was about to meet a death damper than any he'd ever conceived of, end quote. <laughs> God, I'm so Which, bad. <laughs> congrats to the person at Dark Horse who rewrote it to be a line that stuck in my head for two decades. <laughs> um, but at least he acknowledges it. And at least as like someone who grew who grew up in the desert, that idea was so fascinating to me. Especially like a desert planet, and then here you are having to die in a way you never thought possible. Um Yeah. It's a good skeleton to build something better on. <laughs> That's you know, it's a very good point. I I uh I I keep the this novel does sort of make me want to be uncharitable, but the 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 fact is, like the things that I would expect an author to build on didn't exist. I mean, Foster was basically on his own. While while it's very it's it's easy and appropriate to point to some things in this novel that are just stupid. Like at the end of the day, it wasn't possible for him to truly build a story in the Star Wars universe because there wasn't one. So I should be nicer, but holy cow, dude. <laughs> like, I mean, I feel like some of the choices made too were like, how do I explicitly not make this a Dune ripoff? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, like, <laughs> and that's the swamp, right? Like the swamp is the answer that drives how this isn't a Dune ripoff. You still get a massive worm. You still get like um, a native population that helps you overpower the inept, but cr- inept and cruel Imperials. You still have the like magical savior, but, but everything's wet. So it's not Dune. <laughs> I have this picture of Leia turning to Luke and saying, tell me of the deserts of your home world, Usul. <laughs> you know, she can't swim. Amazing. Uh, I, there's a part where Luke says he's been Kenobi. I, has, and maybe he's channeling it. It's like a super underdeveloped idea and then it ends. Yeah, yeah, there's that. Like maybe he was he was saving that up for the next book, <laughs> right? As though like this is what we're gonna do. I'm just gonna have Star Wars is gonna be a cinem- a a cinematic failure, and then I'm gonna have this like meal ticket of novels. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean the part of that was true. It's def- it's definitely clear that Hollywood was his meal ticket. But man, I I am glad that we didn't continue to build the books out in this style. Could you imagine? God, I, yeah. And there's so much, like, it's inconsistent within canon. Hollow references something 40 years ago, and they'd have to have, like, stuck with that, which in hindsight might be better for the prequels. But, like, there's weird, it's all weird. They keep all the slavery tropes. It's super weird. They have, like, we'd have to have something talking about the Imperial Charter more. I, yeah, have to keep going with the like Luke and Leia as a central romantic relationship with like for all the stumbling, the way they stick the landing on that in Return of the Jedi is probably one of the stronger points of how the story works. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I um, uh, the Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi are far and away my favorite within the whole canon. And I know that that those aren't risky choices, 
But the construction and how they build on each other are a large part of that. For what it's worth. And it's to the credit, I think, of how this was written is that nothing that happens in this novel really in any meaningful way interferes with how canon proceeds from it. It's it's remarkably safe. It's a story that references like a couple worlds, takes place entirely on one part of one world and takes place over like a couple months. Yeah. Well, it was very easy to throw dirt over this and pretend it didn't happen. Because, I mean, it was definitely, like, it didn't, uh, I, I think you're right. It is It is so isolated and unrelated to the larger story that, uh, like, it's not like they killed a bunch of characters that people knew and loved. Well, Vader, right. but come on. <laughs> like, they detach Vader's arm, but they talk about it being robotic, right? Like, and so, like, maybe he just falls in the holes, sticks it back on, and is fine. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I <laughs> uh, well, is there anything else you wanted to to make sure we got to in this? Um, I I feel we have we have uh, metaphorically extracted what Kryper Crystal there is to pull from this. Yes, yes, and it, it it's time to blow up the city. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> That covers it. Thank you all for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to FOTOR on SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at FOTORPOD or email us at FOTORPODCAST at gmail.com. You can send us questions and comments. We will answer them on the show. And if you have anything you want to see us address in an episode while we're on our narrative hiatus, please tweet and email us ideas and suggestions. Um, Pete, what do you want to pitch? Oh, uh, well, uh, I too have a podcast. It's called Podside Picnic. Uh, actually, if you just Google that, you'll find everything you want to know. But the central conceit is that I am a science fiction super fan and my partner Connor is a writer getting into the genre and together we're exploring, uh, science fiction. And I think it's a lot of fun and I hope if you enjoyed this, you'll check it out. I should also note that both Luke and I have uh, guested on episodes of Podside Picnic. It was delightful. And also I um, would throw in a pitch for the uh, David Cleon episode where they talk all about the Dune Encyclopedia. If you really want to go in some canon rabbit holes, that's a super fun one. Awesome. Yeah, we you guys basically made our Star Wars month possible because you, you just you just had a wealth of knowledge that we... It would have taken us a lot longer to get up to speed like years. So like we're still we're still grateful for your involvement. Oh, it's delightful. Um, with that, you can find me at Atherton KD on Twitter. You can find Pete at Podside Pete on Twitter. Regular co-host Luke can be found at Luke is Amazing. And may the force be with you.